Hey guys, welcome back to the Sweetgrass Cafe, the only podcast made up of PhD research notes and kick-ass interview segments. I'm your host, Braylon Acker. Last week, we spoke with independent film actor and producer, Mr. Kyle Hester, and learned the importance of contributing to independent film. Since we're on the topic of crowdfunding, there are a lot of horror movies that are funded independently. The fact that they are made outside of Hollywood gives you, as an audience member, a chance to see something other than a scantily clad chick trying to fight off a serial killer. Horror can showcase a multitude of social, psychological, and political issues. This week's guest proved single-handedly that she was something more than that scantily clad chick. She has directed not one, not two, but three feature films. Today she talks with us about her meteoric rise from actress to the director's chair. She's the horror industry's top award-winning scream queen, Miss Jessica Cameron. Let's have a listen. Hey guys, welcome back. It's Braylon, and today we have a very special guest on the Sweetgrass Cafe. It's the scream queen of all scream queens, Jessica Cameron. She's an actor, director, and producer. Jessica, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so very much for having me on. It's an honor to be here. You've been on screen, whether in the form of music video, TV show, or movie more than 70 times, which is quite an an impressive resume, excuse me, for an actress. At what point did you say, screw it, I'm going to direct? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, There was actually a day when I got four scripts from completely different production companies and directors from all over the world. Uh, They did not know each other, but they were the identical for basically the identical script. And it was four or five good looking 20 somethings lost in the woods. Oh no, no cell phone. Oh no, Mm -hmm. no. Need a cannibal family. And I was like, this is (laughs) insane. You do not realize that this has been done many, many times before with more money and far better than we would do it now. Uh, and I was like, there has to be a better way. I don't want to do any of these. You know, uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, so I was like, you know, nobody's making the movies I want to watch right now, or at least they're getting made significantly less. And there's a lot more of this copy what they're doing because that works. Or Texas Chainsaw was a good movie. Let's just remake it and call it something different. Right. Um, yeah. And I just Right? And so I was like, let me just go off and get behind the scenes. Let me write some of the stories that are in my head that I want to watch that I don't feel are getting made. Um, and I would come to find out the reason why, you know, there's a lot of repetition is because it's really hard to do the difference, the, the not tested, the not tried, the not yes. true. It's, you know, it's harder to get money. It's harder to get it released. So that's right. why they don't, but I didn't know that at the time. So that was mm-hmm. kind of like this bird moment where I was like, let me see if I can't do better. If I can't create something more original. Well, it seems like your gamble paid off. Uh, Truth or Dare just kind of like like made all kinds of noise in the um, in the horror world. Um, so, uh, you have a bachelor's degree in fashion design, is that correct? I sure do. Awesome. And as a director, how do you use wardrobe to influence the audience psychology of a character? Say, for example, you know Rosemary's Baby, right? So Mia Farrow's wearing this like baby doll dress and it has a pixie cut. So she looks like she's vulnerable. So how do you do that? I think wardrobe is a wonderful asset that can be utilized to help an audience understand a character or a backstory by simple, 
by the simple ability to relate to a character without having to use dialogue, action, etc. You know, we we see an item of clothing and we automatically have an impression on that type of person that would wear that. So mm-hmm. fashion really help move along a lot of the backstory without having to be like, and here's a flashback talking about why she's a conservative girl. We're just going to stick her in a conservative nightgown. You will understand that she's the conservative demure one because you've Absolutely. seen other women wear this nightgown. Um, and I think the other thing is it helps you relate to them. You know, we know people who dress like this. So we have this feeling of, I know this person, even though obviously it's a fictitious character. I love it. I love it. And I agree a hundred percent. Let's see. Speaking of psychology, the role of light in horror films, in my opinion, sets the tone for the entire movie. I recently rented Run Like Hell, and the lighting techniques were really fantastic. There's this yellow-orange tint. Like, it screams horror, right? But it creates, like, a dissonance in my being. As a director, how do you use light to scare your audience? You know, I think it so much depends upon the story and the characters and the mood you're going for. Light can be so changing depending upon what you're doing, what you have working with. You can literally make something scarier or less scary just by the actual light. Um, For truth or dare, I wanted to do something different because it was such a torture flick. uh, Mm -hmm. And I really loved the fact that it was torturous. And for me, you know, when you're talking about torture, it's not the same kind of scary. It's more gross and unnerving than mm-hmm. it is scary, like coming around the corner, boom, right? Because there's no, you know, you're in a room. The actual act of, you know, if I bring a knife up to your face, I say I'm going to cut you. I mean, they're going to cut you or I'm not. But it's not like <laughs> you're surprised if I cut you. Right, right. Uh, so, so we chose to really, really light it extremely well lit and showcase the gore, which really caught a lot of people off guard. Um, and it really kind of set the tone for the extreme nature because the lighting was also extreme. So in that sense, we utilized light to make the audience realize where we were going and the extremes that we were going to take them to, and it worked really well. Um, I love colored lighting when it's appropriate to the story. So in an ending that you're going to see coming up soon, we utilized a lot of colored lighting to emphasize plot points, moral issues within the storyline, um, and to help the audience sort of connect the the subtext of what was really going on. So it's okay. a really interesting um, interesting film. When you see the color red, to which sometimes it's an item of clothing, sometimes it's um, an actual light, sometimes it's our creature. Anytime the red is on, it, it has a certain symbolism that when you watch the film, you'll understand. But we definitely utilize red lighting for that purpose and also blue to be the polar opposite. Awesome. I, I, can't, I can't wait for this uh, to come, um, to, you know, to, for general audiences to see. It sounds outstanding. Um, according to horrornewsnetwork.net, your latest film and ending, speaking of, is currently in production. The website states that you're not only acting, you're co-directing and producing. That's quite an amazing feat. So what's it like wearing all three separate hats? You know, it's really hard. I've struggled with this before. I think it's always a struggle at the end of the day. It's just hard to do so many things on one project. And at the end of the day, unless you have a lot of money, it's harder to find people to pay to do it well. 
Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I come back to I will do it myself. Not necessarily because I want to, just because by proxy, I don't know anybody else that will care as much as I do. Or that Absolutely. will fight to make as strong as I will. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've always thought, you know, you need to do that, especially on film. You know, it takes a village. Truthfully, it does. So that being said, I it was a challenge. I did on Truth Air, I acted and I directed and I produced and I thought, okay, let's try to you know, I, on Mania, I directed, I did not act in it, but the problem is the acting wasn't great and took a lot more time editing to make it passable. Mm. So I decided to really try something new with an ending, which is to co-direct and then act in it with my hopes that I could get the strongest performances out of my other actors. And also knowing that um, as an actor, if I'm on set, I know even if it's not my movie on any movie, I'm never dramatic. I am never difficult to work with. So I acted in it for that reason because I needed to know uh, that I was going to be the stabilizing force. Now, on an ending, I actually did not have any issues with the actors at all. They mm-hmm. were fantastic. Um, but that being said, you kind of just don't really know all the time. Even when you've worked with people, there's been some people that I've worked with, uh, and then six months later you work with them again, you're like, what the hell happened in six months? <laughs> like, right, some- right. The thing happened where you are now just a bad human being, like a bad, right. bad human. Right, right, uh, right. So I, I tried it. it. It still is really, really hard. I'm not sure. I think I'm just going to go back to directing, acting, and trying to get as many great quality people. Um, it's always tricky because I like to move fast. So that's kind of the challenging part when you co-direct something is you have to work at a speed that you can both work within. Absolutely. So like it goes up to done post production. I don't like to spend, you know, more than nine months in post. Uh, but again, being like, I'm going to devote every moment of every day for 21 hours a day, seven days a week, because I'm obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, unfortunately, that's how everybody acts. Which you know, some people want to socialize. Can't blame them for that. Right, right. I, I think it's incredible. It's almost like you're like um, this. Uh, for lack of a better term, like a mad genius, you know, like how some people just get like caught up with it where that's all that they can think about is their craft. Um, so this is, uh, it's, it's, it's neat to actually hear you talk about it. Um, speaking of geniuses and, and, and craft, uh, the artwork from an ending looks like Edward Munch's The Scream. It seems like it's a very pointed advertising campaign, as if you're trying to give the audience a hint as to what they're about to see. So how does the express... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, we absolutely are. Sorry, Karen, I did not mean to cut you off, my dear. Oh, no, no, you're all good. It's all good. Um, so, like, I was just wondering, like, how does this expressionistic art, artist style, if you will, relate to the movie? The movie itself is really artistic in both tone and execution, and it's a really complex, thought-provoking story, much more so than the other ones that I have done. Um, and probably, you know, it was something I really wanted to experiment. It originally stemmed from my experience with my mother dying of cancer, and that's like the birth of the story, which I don't want to give too much away because it's one of those movies that you really just have to experience for yourself. Okay. You know? Um, but that being said, it's so fluid, it's so artistic, it's so intense, and it's so beautifully styled 
that was the feeling that we were going for with the artwork. And we decided to go with a hand-drawn artwork this time as opposed to a photo or computer-generated image because we just felt the storyline being so intense and elegant and detailed as it was would really fit the tone of a hand-drawn piece mm-hmm. of art. I still think it's really a really a great fit. Yeah, it's very, it's definitely gripping, especially if somebody that doesn't know, like, it, like if I don't know anything about it and I look at it, I'm going to want to know more. You know, it, it, it really is, it, it grabs, it grabs your attention. Um, so at this point in your career, you're pretty much a seasoned director. I guess we can both agree on that, right? Uh, so like, ever really feel seasoned? I mean, I, I'm lucky that I've directed three features now, which is great. That's so awesome. The first, as you're saying, was Truth or Dare. The second was Mania and then, and ending right now. So how does sitting in the director's chair now differ from your first film? You know, there's no, I'm not concerned with, well, what if this doesn't happen? Cause I know I'm so, here's the thing. Everything on independent film goes wrong. That's just how it does. You lose locations. <laughs> the, you know, if you need it to be sunny, it's going to rain. Um, mm-hmm. People are going to show up that that car that you're supposed to have is going to get into a car accident the day before. Um, you know, that dog is going to have an emergency vet appointment. So things are going to happen and you just kind of have to roll with the punches and trust that if you've got the right team of people and if you've really hired the best people for the job who are really in it to win it, then it'll all work itself out, you know. So that's kind of what I – I breathe a little bit easier. Now, okay. Knowing – Knowing, I know everything's going to go wrong. It's not our fault, and we're just going to work through it. That's so awesome. At, and it was when something would go wrong. You're like, oh my god, we lost the location. It's the end of the world. Uh, and now it's like, yeah, we all this. All, okay, of course we did. That's you a know? great attitude. That's, That's a great attitude to have. Right, right. Um, so, which medium do you prefer to shoot movies with, digital or film, and why? What I am gonna get so much flack for this, and I don't give a fuck. Uh, I hope I can. Did um, I prefer digital? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. I love film. There is something that is so wonderfully classic about film that I don't think will ever die. But I have come within my acting and film career up in a digital age. I've only worked with film a couple times in my career. And when I have, it felt extraordinarily time consuming and labor intensive for the end result. I love the ability to work fast and work well Mm -hmm. Um, for low budget. I don't think it's beneficial to film on actual film for a low budget. Cause I think what you give up, the ability to work fast, the ability to work with less crew does not make the effect of working with film better for me. I don't feel that film necessarily enhances every story. I think there are a few classic stories that are enhanced by it. But that being said, I think they're very few and far between from the stories that are done today that I feel would benefit so much that it outweighs the negative aspects of film. And then on top of that, keep in mind with film, every single person on a set that's shooting film that has not shot with film before is a liability. So you kind of really would have, I would have to go off and have a DP who's, you know, worked with film before. Keep in mind, I've never hired one who's worked on film before. All of the DPs I've worked with, although they'd love to work on film, again, they also have come up within their careers in this digital age. So again, I'd have to sort of be going out of my comfort zone, getting people I don't know. And there's so much that goes into working with people 
in the movie world outside of just are they good at their job? Because it's like, do they mesh well? You know, does your lighting and your electric department get along? How do your actors? So having to start all over from scratch with a bunch of people I don't know who know how to work with film is just something that I would be really hard-pressed to ever have any desire to do. That is an outstanding answer. And anybody who's worked in any work situation where new people can completely can completely relate when new people come in like it's new attitudes new everything and having to adjust yeah I I, I totally get it I get it oh it's just so hard you know it's, it's really really difficult you know and even like from an actor like measuring light et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. you know I'm a big fan of technology and I'm a huge fan of how far we've come within technology in the last 10 years and if it had not been for the benefits within the technology, I wouldn't be able to make movies right now because, you know, you have to be able to make them for less money than what you used to. You know, it used to be that it would cost you way more money to rent, you know, a film camera. The cost of film is so expensive. Post-production on film is so expensive. You know, I could not afford to do it. So I'm really loving where we are with the price of technology, and that's with modern technology. Okay. So um, now it's time for the obligatory feminist question. Okay, you ready? So ready. Okay, okay, okay. So there is a school of thought that criticizes the horror genre for being misogynistic due to the fact that women are subjected to violence. Take, for example, Janet Lee and Psycho. But then you have some people um, that believe the exact opposite. Um, take uh, someone like Jess Weeksler and Pete where she completely blows that misogynistic argument out of the water. So how do you feel about this? Um, I think within, I think it's, it's so much depends upon the film and the people involved as to whether or not it's sort of anti-female in any way, shape or form. I think when we look at those movies like Psycho, it's really not fair to pigeonhole the horror genre for that. All of those mm-hmm. movies at that time, regardless of genre, did not portray women in a strong or typically intelligent light. That's correct. Didn't. And I would argue that at the very least, for the most part, the horror films of those times allowed the women to fight back, even if it's minimal, comparatively mm-hmm. to some drama or a Western where they were a boring housewife who never even talked back, <laughs> let alone ever fought. You know, like we were just in a different place in time, and I'm not a fan of where we were then. Right. I love where we are. So I don't feel the horror genre has ever really done that nor exploited that. Uh, I know that uh, also the 80s is, a, is an era that kind of gets a little bit more flat because there's so much women like running through the woods naked. But at the end of the day, too, if a woman chooses to do that and is really enthusiastic about taking a role to which she's running through the woods naked, I'm a very firm believer that that is her choice. More power to you. you okay. Know, um, I'm also much more of a focus now for me on equality, you know, so it's less about, you know, is that woman forced to do something? I, I like to put men in similar situations. If you look truth or dare, the men are tortured as aggressively, arguably more so than the women. You know, I'm a big fan of just equal opportunity carnage. <laughs> uh, I think that that's where we are now. I do think that currently with the increase in females behind the camera, we are seeing more 
vibrant and strong female characters in film. And I personally have found that right now, 2016, I see more strong, independent, original female characters in the independent horror genre than any other genre right now. I, I have no rebuttal. I mean, you, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. The other thing is like, like side note, if you're listening to this and you don't agree, there's something you can do that will make your voice heard. Don't pay for these movies. Don't watch the movies. You know, the best, one of the best things that we have right now at our disposal is the fact that in 2016 with social media being so powerful, really being a consumer is a powerful position to be in. So you don't like something, don't share it on social media. Don't bitch about it on publicly and don't give your money to go see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause you're just fanning the flame. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, and no bad, like, you know, there's no such thing as bad press. And that's really, really true. I think about that frequently when I'm looking at this election. I'm like, guys, oh. guys, you know, you're helping. If you hate this person, every, the fact that you, I see you post 10 times a week about hating this person and once about the person you like, that's a problem, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jessica Cameron, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you so very much for having me on. As you can tell, Jessica Cameron is a force to be reckoned with. Ms. Cameron took the horror industry standards and decided to up the ante. Her attention to detail, coupled with her gifted storytelling, puts her in a class of her own. There's a reason her name pops up in pretty much every horror magazine. Jessica Cameron is the embodiment of horror. I suspect within the next few years, academics will take notice of her body of work and add her to the annals of cinematic history with greats like Terrence Fisher. We'd like to thank Jessica Cameron for taking time to talk with us. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Sweetgrass Cafe is a new podcast, so please give us a rating and review. We'd really appreciate it. The show was created by Lauren Rose and Erica Reynolds, and it was written and produced by Erica Reynolds. Music was provided by purpleplanet.com, and the sound effects came from freesoundeffects.com.